the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. Follow us online, danproftshow.com, and uh, on social media, at danproftshow. And uh, we begin with... um, Perspectives from immigrants. Isn't it funny when um, you have America under assault from those who would try to remake America into something she isn't? It's often uh, relatively recent immigrants that rally to her defense more so than natural born Americans. And so is the case with Gerard Baker writing the Wall Street Journal. Gerard Baker uh, this is personal for me. I came to this country at that gr- as uh, that great American century was closing. Like millions of immigrants, I was drawn by the irresistible allure of a nation forged in pursuit of a universal ideal it had actually succeeded in achieving. Of course, recognizing racial prejudice and other challenges, but nonetheless, concludes Baker, this country hasn't passed from great to evil in two decades. America hasn't failed, but Americans have failed. Misled by inept and deceitful political leaders, deserted by predatory and mercenary corporate chiefs, And above all, betrayed by a parasitic cultural elite that exploited American freedom to trash the country. This uh, isn't American history that needs to be repudiated. It's its present. Not its history, it's present. And that's not to recognize the, the black periods in our history. That is not to say... Slavery shouldn't be repudiated. Jim Crow shouldn't be repudiated. The internment of the Japanese shouldn't be repudiated. All of those should be in the sense that we learn, we understand what happened in our history. We recognize what is bad, what was evil, and we call it evil, and we say we're going to do good, as distinguished from the evil we know was done. We're going to build on the good that was done with the past. We're going to discard the evil that was done in the past. We're going to understand the difference between the two and chart a better course. Form a more perfect union. What is so complicated about this? Another offering, Leo Leibovitz, writing for Tablet Magazine. I was 14, standing on the roof of my home in suburban Tel Aviv and watching American Patriot missiles intercept Saddam Hussein's projectiles and destroy them midair. That's when his affair with America began. America wasn't just a country, it was a rocket, a boom, a sigh of relief from all of us under attack. A promise that every malicious launch will forever be met by a battery of hope. I fell in love with America that night, and my infatuation never waned. As soon as I could, I left home and washed up on these shores like so many other immigrants before me. It didn't come in search of refuge or opportunity, but in search of greatness I firmly believed this nation possessed. I came here with two grand in my pocket, no address, and a heart swelling with pride. Soon I will be an American, one of the roughs. Leibovitz now been here 20 years, but still concerns himself a newcomer. 
And he goes on to describe what he's seen from his perspective as an immigrant who's been here 20 years over the last several weeks. What America has, uh, um, some Americans have demonstrated and what he recognizes is not consistent with who America is. An American, uh, excuse me, in an America in which large crowds are mobilized from the top down and pressure to claim their total allegiance to a cause, any cause, is not the America I know and love. An American which you're ordered to excuse violence of any kind for whatever reason is not the America I know and love. An America in which even a show for toddlers about dogs with jobs feels compelled to make a political message is not the America I know and love. Well, somebody who knows uh, a lot about America and loves her as well is our friend Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and it's been a minute since we've spoken with him. It's a pleasure to have him back. He's an American political commentator, retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, author, and former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Colonel West, thanks for joining us again. Great to have you. Dan, Dan, it's a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, you know, this is an incredible country that has afforded me so many great opportunities, and it is really distressing what I see happening in America right now. And and so, you know, you, you get perspective from people who've been here 20 years. Uh, you have perspective as black American about uh, our history and the maltreatment of blacks throughout our history. And this is uh, central to the grievances that are being lodged by various quarters. But do you see anything productive coming from those who suggest that America still has uh, things for which it must atone and it must atone through the descendants of slaveholders, for example? No, nothing positive comes from that. As a matter of fact, you know, you're looking, you're talking to a guy right now that was born in 1961 in the Blacks-only hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. So I was born in a segregated hospital. Uh, I grew up in the inner city community of the Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. That's the neighborhood that uh, produced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where Ebenezer Baptist Church still sits. It was the cradle of the uh, civil rights movement. So that's the backdrop that I grew up with. But guess what? From from that life, from that birth, you know, a, a dad who was born in 1920 and a mother in 1931 grew up in South Georgia. Uh, I became a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. I became uh, a member of the United States House of Representatives and, and not in a, a black uh, congressional area. I, you know, I represented the southeastern coast of Florida to, to include Palm Beach Island and Fort Lauderdale Beach. You know, when I was born in 61, blacks couldn't go on Fort Lauderdale Beach. Fifty years later, I'm sworn in as the congressional representative that represented Fort Lauderdale Beach. Those are the stories we should be telling. But unfortunately, there, there are people out there that want to continue to, you know, promulgate the message of, you know, racism and grievances and things of that nature. They're not focused on the real issues that are facing the black community. You're, you're up there in Chicago. You see what is happening on the south side of Chicago. You know about the, the little black children that were killed over this past weekend and weekends previous to that. Mm-hmm. But you don't hear NAACP or Black Lives Matter talking about that. They're not talking about better education opportunities. They're not talking about the restoration of the traditional nuclear black family. They're not talking about all the things that I experienced as a young man growing up in an inner city black community that makes me who I am today. And and so, you know, this is the same question I put to Robert Johnson. I'll be interested in your answer. You know, Robert Johnson, the founder of BET, uh, he's now a gentleman in his 70s and uh, uh, grew up in uh, in in exurban Illinois, uh, 
a, you know, basketball standout in high school, a good student, goes on to University of Illinois, goes on to Princeton for a master's degree, becomes uh, the first black billionaire in America. And um, and now he's focused on some sort of reparations plan that we discussed in some detail. But I just asked him this. I mean, you know, you, Mr. Johnson, you grew up in in the Jim Crow South. You know exactly what institutional racism looks like and feels like you lived through it. Um, why aren't there more Robert Johnsons? Why can a Robert Johnson come out of uh, the Jim Crow South? But there are so few uh, examples of that at present. Uh, why why don't we see more examples like you? What What is it exactly that is holding uh, black uh, some black Americans back. And and so I would ask the same question of you as a successful black American. Why aren't there more Alan Wests uh, in America? Or is it just that they're not talked about? Well, I think for one thing, they're not talked about. You don't hear many people talking about Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams. And furthermore, look what happened this weekend. The statue of Frederick Douglass was torn down. Mm-hmm. If there's any example to emulate, it's the example of Frederick Douglass. I mean, a man born into slavery who became free, self-educated, who became an advisor and a counselor to the president of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln, and who you know, was probably in, in equivalent dollars to the day uh, of, of, a, a successful millionaire. Uh, my ideological mentor, Booker T. Washington, we don't tell those stories. We don't talk about those type of things. And so what we end up doing is we have the grievance mongers. We have the Jesse Jackson, the Al Sharpens. They're out there dominating the narrative. But the most important thing, Dan, is that look at the ingredients of success, even though it was a segregated Jim Crow South or whatever, it was a strong family. It was a focus on education. It was a focus on individual responsibility. It was a focus on respect for authority. The real conversation we should be having in the United States of America right now is the failure of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs and in 1965, this war on poverty and what have you, because you saw a, a an incredible decline of all of those things that made the black community strong over these last 55 years. We, we created a welfare United state, a 21st century economic plantation, and now we are reaping the consequences thereof. Uh, when we come back with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, I want to ask him uh, what he uh, thinks about uh, the urban centers that have been dominated for 50 to 100 years by uh, Democrats, one way of thinking, uh, one way of governing. And if he thinks that actually uh, what appears strong is relatively weak under the surface and we may be seeing a, a transformation in urban centers in, a, in an unexpected direction. More with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West right after this. Nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Wow! There is nothing fair in this world. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He is, of course, a uh, American political commentator, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, author, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives, as we were discussing. And uh, Colonel West, uh, Joel Kotkin has an interesting piece 
about urban centers. He's uh, written a book about the clerisy versus the yeomanry and middle-income families. Uh, the managerial elite is another way to describe it. Michael Lind at University of Texas. Uh, those with college degrees, versus the, that's the clerisy versus the yeomanry, which are the small business owner operators, the workaday moms and dads. That's a real divide in this country. And he suggests that um, even as their political power waxes, does Kotkin suggest, the woke progressives are engaged in a process of blueicide, undermining their own urban base of disadvantaged citizens and their own credibility in the process. With the departure of the urban middle class, with even millennials now joining the exodus, cities like New York are increasingly divided by predominantly white and Asian overclass and a large, often struggling, predominantly minority population without uh, any middle income restraint between the two. And uh, this is uh, what he suggests is a bit of a powder keg, and it may not work out nearly as well as those leftist elites who like to keep people in their place think it will. Well, this comes back to a phrase that I like to use very often. It's called the soft bigotry of low expectations. And I think, again, that's what you are seeing happen when you are not allowing you know, better education opportunities. The left, as a matter of fact, you don't hear Black Lives Matter talking about school choice or vouchers or educational freedom. That's one of the, the cornerstones. So they have created, again, these failing schools, which was completely different from, you know, when I grew up. My parents made a choice for me to go to a black Catholic school. I later Lewis Catholic School instead of the two public schools that were there. When I also think about how, as a little boy, I used to walk down Auburn Avenue, and I saw the cradle of black entrepreneurship. I saw lawyers' offices, doctors' offices. I saw black-owned businesses, Citizens Trucks Bank back then, the black-owned bank in Atlanta, Georgia. You don't see those things anymore. And again, I think that's what we need to have the conversation about is what were the policies that decimated economic opportunity, educational opportunity? Because I think, Dan, we have moved away from understanding the equality of opportunity to an equality of outcomes. And we have too many of these progressive socialists that are trying to dictate and determine outcomes instead of promoting opportunities. And that's why you see, I think, this large schism. And it's going to end up backfiring, like you say, when you look at what has happened in Chicago, Baltimore. These places are abhorrent. And think about Barack Obama, you know, the quote-unquote celebrated first black president. In April 2009, he canceled the D.C. school voucher program. NAACP didn't say anything. National Urban League didn't say anything because it was about an ideological agenda. It wasn't about what was best for the community. But, of course, Barack Obama sent his kids to the very prestigious Sidwell Friends. So education is the start, and that exacerbates that schism when you're not providing those strong education opportunities early on. I was uh, speaking about this on yesterday's show with Bob Woodson, this uh, twofer that the cultural Marxist has been able to affect. On the one hand, they tell black Americans, and this is, you know, in with the help of the NAACP and other leftist organizations, but not including black organizations, but certainly not limited to. They tell black Americans that America is hopelessly racist, is systemically racist. You can't succeed. Thus, you need to depend on government. And so mm-hmm. anybody who is opposed to growing government is a racist because they're opposed to your interests. And then on the other hand, they say to white America 
that uh, blacks rely on government. If you don't support bigger government, then you're racist. So you better support bigger government to make up for the sins that were committed against black people historically in this country. So they've got, you know, sort of they push people into believing that they have some sort of white man's burden on the, the one side and they push other people into believing that they are hopelessly dependent on the white man on the other side. And that's supposed to be a cure for white supremacy. It sounds to me like a inculcation of white supremacy, doesn't it? It is an inculcation of white supremacy. And to me, that is the ultimate racism. When you basically tell people that you cannot achieve, that you can only get along by dependency upon the government. And again, that's what I call the equality of outcomes. And when you talk about the shaming of white America, Shelby Steele wrote an incredible book about this. And I read it when I was in Afghanistan back in 2005 called White Guilt. And we see that playing out right now. And so you create a Marxist organization, but you give it a name called Black Lives Matter to put people on the defense, on their heels. But if you peel the onion back and you go to the website and read what this group stands for, they stand for everything that's against the fundamental principles and values of the black community. They are against the traditional nuclear family. They don't talk about education, freedom, economic opportunities. And I think that it's time that we start to say, what is it that Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Saul Alinsky, Vladimir Lenin, you know, anyone that's... You know, supports a Marxist, socialist, communist, status ideology. What do they have consistent with the black community? Nothing. Well, and also, too, I mean, just, you know, look, if people have common sense. Let's just run the traps on this. You know, what they're proposing as the cure for white supremacy is a guarantee of it instead. I mean, you yeah. don't see that? Look, you know, look around. I mean, how are your schools? How safe are your neighborhoods? I mean, and again, this is not to do what the media does is character all black Americans as living in poverty, because that's obviously not true. Most black Americans are middle income, like white Americans, although there's some disparity in household income, I understand. But I mean, this caricature of you're either an entertainer or you're in poverty is not helpful either. But I mean, it's just run the traps on this. And does that make sense to you what they're telling you versus what you're seeing you're getting, right? No, you're absolutely right. And I think that it comes down to these two different uh, delineations. Either you want to be a victor or you're going to be a victim. Either you want economic empowerment or you're going to get economic enslavement. And this is the clear choice that we have to make in 2020. And it is an even clearer choice that we have to make in the black community. And I think about how ugly it is even within the black community because there are those of us, like you talk about Mr. Woodson, uh, Larry Elder, myself, Herman Cain, many others that are standing up and talking about these conservative principles and values. And yet what happened? You just recently had Snoop Diggity Doggity come out and mm. talk about the Coon Squad. Mm-hmm. And see, that's the silliness that mm-hmm. we have going on because mm-hmm. what you have folks like himself and others, they are the ones that have become the overseers on a new plantation, and they don't want people to be economically empowered and freed. And how do you react uh, when you see what's happening to sports in America now, too, with uh, NBA players wanting to have social justice bromides on the back of their jerseys and the Black National Anthem to be played in conjunction with the uh, National Anthem at uh, NFL games and the like? This is ignorance. You know, I I was an American soldier, and I still consider myself a soldier. I took an oath to the United States Constitution. Uh, I enjoy and and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I I enjoy, I get goosebumps when I stand and I salute for the playing of the national anthem. Look, I grew up in, in, like I said, in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia, and we sang the, the, the black national anthem at the close of every church service at 4th Street United Methodist Church. But that was not the anthem. Of, of my country. Uh, that was a rallying cry of our community. 
and that's how it has to be seen. So again, mm-hmm. you know, if mm-hmm. you're going to to go into a sports venue, why then where's the white national anthem? Where's the Hispanic national anthem? Where's the Asian national anthem? Do we need to have an Italian national anthem, a German national anthem? No, we're e pluribus unum. Out of many, we are one. And we don't need this divisiveness that I see being proliferated in this country. He is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, American political commentator, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, author, and former member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Colonel West, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. All mine. Thanks, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. I wanted to uh, begin uh, this segment in advance of bringing on our guest, Professor Daniel Mahoney from Assumption College. Uh, Something that uh, President Trump said towards the end of his speech at Mount Rushmore over the Independence Day weekend when he invoked uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and a note of unity, national unity. In the face of lies meant to divide us, demoralize us, and diminish us, we will show that the story of America unites us, inspires us, includes us all, and makes everyone free. We must demand that our children are taught once again to see America as did Reverend Martin Luther King when he said that the founders had signed a promissory note to every future generation. Dr. King saw that the mission of justice required us to fully embrace our founding ideals, those ideals. Reverend King was a builder. And what we have today, those who lie and attempt to demoralize, as President Trump said, those who demand we kneel before them rather than before God. What we have there are destroyers, uh, which uh, prompted my invitation to uh, Professor Mahoney to come on because he wrote an excellent piece on this very topic about the real culture of hate in America. Daniel Mahoney holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Studies at Assumption College. He is the author most recently of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. Professor Mahoney, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, And so uh, President Trump's words there about the Reverend King building upon the progress that had been made from the country's founding to the civil rights movement in the 60s, building, building, building to uh, a better nation. And what do we have today in contrast, even those who invoke Reverend King's legacy? It seems to me we have the opposite conduct. I think we have pure nihilism, a project to destroy. Roger Scruton, the great British conservative philosopher, called it a culture of repudiation, to repudiate everything in our heritage. Not only the great progress we've made on race relations and in bringing about what Lincoln called a new birth of freedom that would bring all Americans into the national community in a more full and complete way, but we're rejecting the principles that allow us to move forward with that project. So, you know, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, great black leaders over the course of over a century, all affirmed the truth of American principles. They did not believe 
rightly, that the words all men are created equal just refer to white men of English descent. And, and the historical record makes very clear all the founding fathers believed slavery was wrong. They didn't know how to get rid of it right away, but they believed it was wrong. This was an argument Frederick Douglass made when he said the Constitution was in no fundamental respects a pro-slavery Constitution. It's an argument Lincoln made. And so when Martin Luther King spoke on the Mall on the 100th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, he begins five score years ago invoking Lincoln, and he quite rightly called the Declaration of Independence a promissory note, meaning the principles were 100% to be affirmed, but America hadn't delivered on them or delivered on them nearly uh, fully enough for, the, for black Americans, and that was the work ahead of us to bring about that new birth of freedom. But when you reject, remember these were colorblind principles. Martin Luther King said he wanted his children to be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. But the radicals in Antifa, BLM, etc., the movement, not the slogan, they are fully committed to judging people only by the color of their skin. And that's a kind of racism, and it's a kind of destructive racism. So the president was absolutely right. It was a patriotic speech. It was a principled speech. It was an anti-racist speech, and the press cover coverage was beyond lamentable, you know, turning it into a dog whistle for the KKK. I mean, I've never seen such egregious distortions. Well, of, yes, of, the combination of that suggestion and, and the, that President Trump somehow is spoiling for a culture war rather than responding to the one that has been brought to his front door. Well, the idea that he's starting a culture war, when Frederick Douglass gets toppled, as he did two days ago in Rochester, right. when abolitionists and Quakers get toppled, when Abraham Lincoln, who Frederick Douglass rightly said loathes slavery, when he gets toppled, when Uniper Serra, the great saint who spoke up unequivocally for the dignity of Indians, when St. Louis, the greatest, St. Louis, the greatest French Catholic king, who's rightly a saint, gets attacked by ignorant mobs and radical Maoist leaders, this isn't a cultural war, this is a cultural revolution. Let's hold it there. When we come back, I, I want to pick this up and also uh, fold in uh, any responsibility conservatives have for uh, where we are at this point in time in 2020 America, in the West in 2020, really. Daniel Mahoney is uh, the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Studies at Assumption College. He's the author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. We'll be back with more right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back. We're speaking with Professor Daniel Mahoney, who holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Studies at Assumption College. He's the author, most recently, of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. And, uh, Professor Mahoney, just picking up uh, uh, what we were discussing before the break about uh, this uh, culture of nihilism uh, that uh, currently afflicts America, what then is the response other than the rejection of it? Uh, What is... What would you say to somebody who says, I, I reject the things that uh, you're describing, the things that you've written about, 
So how do I respond productively? What is the path well, forward that I, I present? I must say until several years, uh, several days ago, the response coming from not just the conservative side, but the non-nihilistic side, the side that wants to preserve our civilization and our republic, has been, uh, frankly, pusillanimous. Mm-hmm. Uh, too many people have been appeasing the mob. Too many people, the media refuses to call events for what they are. The coverage is lamentable. Too many conservatives have been quiet, hoping this will all go away. I think we need troops around all the monuments in the country to protect our national patrimony. I think we need civic leaders, church leaders, conservative leaders denouncing nihilistic and proto-totalitarian organizations. We have to uh, stop pretending that the BLM leadership stands for the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. They're Maoists. They're Marxists. They hate the family. They hate Christian civilization. They hate America. They're committed simply to a, a culture of destruction, and they don't give a damn about most black lives. They want a demagogue, a few isolated incidents when black unarmed blacks are killed by the police, uh, uh, unarmed whites are sometimes killed by police, but it gets no coverage. Um, and they are completely silent about the mayhem in the cities. The This weekend, so many children in major cities were shot uh, in black-on-black violence. We have a huge increase, the Ferguson effect uh, uh, on steroids going on in New York and Baltimore and Chicago and uh, in Los Angeles. You know, just a tremendous increase in violence and mayhem and uh, so we um, we need to call things by their name. We need law enforcement. We need to protect the national patrimony, um, and we need to stop. It's almost as like people are living in an alternative universe. The idea that we live in a country marked by systematic racism, where the police everywhere are gunning down blacks on purpose, is absurd and obscene. And that narrative is now fueling demands to defund and abolish the police, which will only lead to many vulnerable, poor people, many people of color dying. But here's the here's the problem, as you most certainly recognize, is that when somebody uh, comes to a position not from logic, it's difficult them. It's difficult to dislodge them from that position with logic. It's very much like talking about some aspects of the pandemic. There is just no amount of data and evidence, no amount of science that is going to move people who've adopted certain dogma about a particular issue. Well, I'm not particularly interested in persuading the woke who there's a kind of ideological contagion or virus now where otherwise reasonable people have been won over by fanaticism. Right. Uh, fundamentally mendacious account of our history and our principles. We're not going to convince most of them right now, but there's a lot of people of goodwill, normally sane people, who um, just haven't been. They don't know the truth about the BLM movement. They don't really know the extent of the cultural desecration. They don't. One of the wonderful things about the president's Mount Rushmore address is that he actually provided a civic education. Mm-hmm. He uh, he told Americans why those four men on Mount Rushmore are on Mount Rushmore. He explained that our principles are the ground for opposing racism and earlier opposing slavery, that uh, our country was not born on pro-slavery 
principles, contrary to legend. Uh, i give you a quick example. You know, for the Constitution, the three-fifths clause. I don't know how many times I've heard professors and journalists say the founders thought blacks were three-fifths of a human being. But in fact, the southern slave owners wanted to count blacks in the South as one person for re- reasons of representation because they wanted more pro-slavery elements in Congress. Right. And it was the anti-slave forces in the North and some in the South who opposed slavery, who wanted to count slaves for three-fifths of representation, not because they denied their humanity, because they didn't want the slave owners to be able to distort the Constitution. So that kind of – we can educate people. We can we can break through this conspiracy of lies, and that it's not going to convince everyone. Thirty percent of uh, the American people are going to hold to this ideological nihilism, uh, regardless of what we do. But right now, people of goodwill are at a loss. You know, they're uh, they just don't know what to believe, and they're not. A lot of them are not hearing the truth. So, I think some courage, some reason, can make a difference. Where it matters. Uh, with, just and 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 I and I appreciate what you have to say about the the Jacobins and and that seems um, you know that's that's makes a lot of sense. And by the way, the three fifths uh, example that you use that is one of the most misunderstood uh, uh, misunderstood aspects of our history, particularly as anything relating to slavery. And it's it is remarkable how few people understand the actual dynamic at play there. I heard Senator Rubio make that mistake the other day in a talk, and he's a good man, but he, uh, you know, why are people repeating these falsehoods? These things want to be known because, you know, what are people learning in high schools? They're reading Howard Zinn's People's History yes. of the United States. That's right. the book that started the false legend about Columbus. Columbus wasn't guilty of genocide, but every conservative politician in the country thinks he was, and that's why they're proposing the elimination of Columbus Day. It's rank ignorance. When we come back with Professor Mahoney, I want to stay centered on conservatism and uh, recount a conversation I had with a uh, Orthodox Christian friend of mine who uh, works for Touchstone Magazine about whether or not conservatism has done more harm than good. More with Professor Daniel J. Mahoney from Sumption College. When he The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Professor Daniel Mahoney. I want to uh, relay a conversation I had with uh, an Orthodox Christian friend of mine who worked for Touchdown Magazine. And uh, he was reflecting on conservatism, and he, he, he basically argued that uh, conservatism potentially has done more harm than good in the sense that it gave men a way to not be liberal while still not having any obligation to Christ. And he argued that without conservatism to fall back on, men might have had to turn to Scripture for an explanation of all the nonsense. Uh, and without Christ, conservatism is just a name for the pace at which liberalism will be imposed. How do you respond to that 
contention. Well, there's something to that. There are some um, soi-disant, as the French say, so-called liberal conservatives who really, you know, they're against gay marriage for an hour or two, but then when it's imposed, you know, you're a homophobe if you oppose it. Right. And uh, we see this with transgenderism now, and they're faux conservatives. Um, look, we've got to take what we can, and there are secular conservatives, and there are, frankly, Christian conservatives who are not particularly zealous, but who nonetheless, um, whose conservatism is broadly based on, on uh, you know, the, the moral principles of, of, the, of the tradition, the Bible, classical wisdom. And, um, you know, not everyone is going to put their Christian commitment first and their public commitment. So I think that on the whole, the conservative movement has been, uh, you know, we've got to work with it because it's the only movement out there politically that is defending the West or defending America. But I agree broadly that conservatism needs a transcendental support, and that means um, uh, something more than a slow-motion accommodation to uh, what's going on or, or to the zeitgeist and that. So I think your friend, I love Touchstone, by the way, I, I subscribe. Uh, yeah, I think he's right, but I also would say he's a bit hard because, you know, any coalition is going to include a lot of different people. And while some of us will make our Christian affirmation more front and center, other decent people, you know, will uh, will will defend the same things on, you know, with a somewhat different mix of emphases. But, yeah, I mean, if, if, if our civilization ever loses um, an explicit identification with the sovereignty of God or the the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, we're finished. It can't just be, you know, we're doing, we're, we're, uh, we're the Me Too party going a little more slowly than the left because uh, who needs that? It's not, um, it's, it's not going to help the common cause of saving and revitalizing our, our either our political order or our, our civilization. He is Professor Daniel J. Mahoney. He holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Studies at Assumption College, the author most recently of the Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. Professor Mahoney, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It was a great, great pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Far from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. I got a question. Are we, uh, and should we be talking about a recovery, or should we be talking about a double dip? Because I don't understand how we can have a recovery of any sort. I know the jobs numbers in May and June were good. Much better than expected. Seven million new jobs in May and June, and that's great. But how can you have any sort of sustained recovery if the approach is to use lockdowns to play whack-a-mole with COVID-19? You're open, you're closed. You're open, you're closed. 
How does any business survive in that uncertain environment? There's only so much money the federal government can print to provide the liquidity to keep businesses afloat. And we know, despite $7 trillion plus of said liquidity and disaster relief, they're projecting, the economists projecting a loss of a quarter of restaurants, a significant percentage of hotels in urban centers like New York and Chicago. So how, how does that work? How does that work in lockdown states, big blue states that have big economies and politicians that don't have a particular interest in the survival of their business community? Why are we talking about a, an L-shaped, a U-shaped, a V-shaped recovery with this policy environment, particularly in big states with big economies? Well, I'm not smart enough to answer that, but we have somebody who is. He's Andy Pudzer. He is a senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants for more than 16 years, following a career as an attorney and also a former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary, author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon-to-be-released It's Time to Let America Work Again. That's if America wants to work again, which is also a question mark, at least in certain quarters, as far as I understand. Andy Puzder, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, what about uh, my confusion? How, how do you have uh, a recovery of any shape if you have whack-a-mole, uh, if you use lockdowns to play whack-a-mole with the virus? Well, the economy does seem to be recovering despite the fact that we have these instances of flare-ups across the country. I'm not saying that it's the best system for either dealing with the economy or the disease, but even the numbers we've gotten for July so far have been very, very positive. People are getting out. They are working. I think when the $600 a week bonus for not working expires at the end of this month, I think you'll see a further surge in people rejoining the labor force. You'll see the unemployment rate come down even more. Look, this isn't ideal, but I think it's good to keep in mind, we don't need to get back to where we were in February immediately. We need to see the economy steadily improving. We need to see people getting back to work. And that's exactly what we are seeing. We're seeing this economy move in the right direction. And while the virus is spreading, I think one thing that we should note very prominently is that deaths are declining. Deaths have been very low. They've been in the, they were between two and 3,000 a day. Back in April, yesterday, they were, according to John Hopkins, 325 deaths. And the day before, there were 271. Now, one death is too many. So 325 is 325 too many. But we didn't shut the economy down because people were going to get sick. We shut it down because people were going to die in massive numbers, and we're not seeing those numbers. Uh, President Trump has signaled an openness to another round of disaster relief. You know, I call it disaster relief. Somebody else calls it stimulus checks for Americans. Put more money directly in America's, in the hands of Americans. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I'm not a Keynesian. I don't think that putting money in people's pockets drives economic growth. I do think we needed to put money in people's pockets when we locked them out of their jobs, when we made it impossible for people to pay their rent or to buy food mm -hmm. or to support their families. I think what we did was good. But doing it going forward, this idea that it's going to create demand, this is like when Obama said this $800 billion stimulus that they passed in 2009, shortly after he was elected, he promised that unemployment wouldn't go over 8% if we passed this $800 billion in stimulus. 
Well, it went over 8% the month that it was passed, and it stayed above 8% for 43 consecutive months. Then they promised that the stimulus was going to create 3.8% GDP growth in 2011 and 4% plus in 2012 through 14. Well, as you know, GDP, our economic growth never hit even 3%. That's all based on these Keynesian notions that if you put money in the economy, it's going to drive economic growth. That's just not true. We need to give people money so they can survive. We should do that. We did it. It was important. And if people need money, we should continue to help. But to use it as a lever to drive the economy, that's ridiculous. We are driving the economy now. We're seeing it improve. We will continue to see it improve as long as government doesn't get in the way. Don't you find it uh, rather remarkable, the conversations we're having, where you have some people essentially taking the position, you know, we can uh, recover, we can have our economy recover without having an economy. Uh, we don't need uh, productivity in the private sector. We'll just we have to bail out governments, of course, and we have to make sure that no government workers are laid off and we need to print money to put in people's hands and we need to provide loans for businesses that are uh, loans that can be uh, converted into grants for uh, businesses that were shuttered by the government and so on and so forth. But the one thing we don't need to do is ever get people back to work and entrepreneurs taking productive risks and all the other things that are the component parts of why we have the greatest economy, the, the most wealth the world has ever seen. Well, not only is it ridiculous and hypocritical, but it ignores the human suffering this is creating. There was a study out recently by two medical foundations that said we are suffering an epidemic at this time within the pandemic. It's an epidemic of suicides, drug addiction, and alcohol addiction, which this study said could result in 150,000 deaths independent of the pandemic. Look, a government check is very much appreciated during a crisis, and we did that. And I'm sure that the checks were very much appreciated by everybody that got them. But a government check, sustained government dependence, is no substitute for the dignity of a job, the security of an earned paycheck, or the opportunity to improve your life and succeed. Those, you know, if you can't substitute for those things, you do not have a happy society when people are dependent on government, which is why in any socialist country you look at across history and across the globe, you see depression, misery, and suffering. And so we need not to head in the direction that the Democrats, you know, led by Joe Biden, who you know, is obviously having some mental difficulties at the time, but is being very influenced by the people he's surrounded with, who are very, very far left leaning, want to transform this country into something I don't think many of us want to see happen ever. We've got to be very careful. We are at a, a touch point in our history. We've been here before and we've succeeded. We fought back the proponents of collectivism and socialism. We need to do that again. This election is going to be very, very determinative for our future and the future of our children and our grandchildren. Uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, now at the Hoover Institution and a Fulbright scholar from Hoover, Pablo Tortoloro, uh, wrote a piece about uh, USMCA, which uh, took effect last week to very few people's notice. But uh, they argue that this uh, United States-Mexico-Canada trade agreement can do wonders to expedite the recovery. They talk about, among other things, uh, thinking about important states and states recovering that have 15 percent plus unemployment right now, like Michigan. Exports from Michigan to Mexico amount to more than $10 billion a year. And, uh, and, they, and they go on they, to, to just you know go through some of the, the data in terms of what they suggest and how important Canada and Mexico are as trading partners, which we understand. But uh, do you hold also the same, do you hold the same hope that they have that um, the uh, increased economic activity under the USMCA between our trading partners to the north and south can help move this recovery along? 
Yeah, it'll be tremendous. The way to think about it is, and McMaster did a great job in that article going through the various data, but I think a simpler way to think about it is that the United States, Canada, and Mexico are now in a sense a unified economic unit. It, it, much like what we did when we, when we enacted the Constitution, we took 13 independent states and we turned them into a collective economic unit that eventually became all 50 states. We're now expanding that economic, not political, but the economic unit to cover these huge economies. You know, Canada and Mexico have been our number one, two or three trading partner for the past couple of decades. We've now got this huge economic entity, and it will be the envy of the rest of the world. We've now shown Europe, we've shown Japan, we've shown China what we're willing to agree to when we entered into this agreement with Mexico and Canada. It now can serve as a template for future agreements. This agreement will be very significant, assuming we don't end up with a president uh, who backs off of using uh, strong negotiating tactics with other countries, that doesn't give our jobs away to other countries, that doesn't feel obligated to somehow try and appease the Chinese, as Joe Biden has done throughout his career. If we can stick with President Trump, if we can stick with these free markets, positive for America trade agreements uh, that he's been pursuing, and I think we're going to see a level of economic success that we've probably never seen before in our history. We were on our way to that level of success when the uh, coronavirus from China hit our shores. Uh, we can get back there again, but we sure can't get back there uh, if we elect uh, President uh, President Biden and, um, and his team of advisors. He is Andy Puzder. He's senior fellow at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy, former CEO of CKE Restaurants. And uh, following a career as an attorney and former nominee for that was following a career as an attorney and former nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary. He's the author of the recently released Getting America Back to Work and the soon to be released It's Time to Let America Work. Andy Pusser, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. We were talking with uh, former Labor Secretary nominee Andy Puzder about uh, jobs. So let's talk about jobs before we get on to uh, COVID with uh, Dr. Ladapo coming up after the break. Uh, the best summer job for a young man or woman. Best summer job, maybe best job in these times, being a caddy. I was one from the grade or from the age of 11, so the grade of fifth, through college, through summers in college at Chicago Golf Club in Wheaton, which is the oldest 18-hole golf course in America, I'll have you know. And uh, I was thus naturally drawn to this uh, letter in the Chicago Tribune from a gentleman, gentleman named Pat Atwood, who grew up not too far from me and who uh, wrote this letter on the occasion of uh, just having earned his MBA at Stanford, and uh, he is planning his return to Chicago to work in the financial sector. He talks about uh, growing up caddying, growing up from eighth grade until mid-college, six days a week, that was my life, caddying. My mom staying at home to raise us five, and my dad, a teacher, couldn't afford college for us all. They escorted me to caddy orientation at Rolling Green Country Club in Arlington Heights, And that was that. No discussion about sports camps or summer trips. That was my lifeline to a decent college education without crippling debt. And uh, again, Stanford MBA in tow at the age of 27. Pat seems to be 
doing pretty well, learned a lot of lessons along the way, many through caddying, and he recounts them. By the way, Rolling Green Country Club, quick aside. If you've ever seen the movie The Founder, Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, when he uh, is uh, walking up to uh, guys on the golf course trying to enlist people that lived in Arlington Heights where Ray Kroc lived to uh, become McDonald's franchisees. He's at Rolling Green Country Club. So it, uh, there's a little little history there. There's a little uh, infamy because of uh, Ray Kroc. And that was actually one of those times, uh, rare times on a golf course where somebody gives you uh, financial advice or a financial opportunity and it pays off. And then some, boy, those early McDonald's franchisees uh, have a lot of thanks owed in the direction of Ray Kroc, don't they? Or now their descendants do. Anyway, getting back to Pat and his lessons from Cadding. Cadding taught me to laugh at myself. He recounts a story uh, where a bad, the, the golf bag that for this woman he was caddying for snagged my shorts, stripped me down to my briefs. There I stood as four stunned women gaped. Happy to carry on as is, I chuckled, or I can run back to the pro shop and grab some new trousers. They chose the latter. Hmm, this is Haverkamp. A cadding uh, taught me valuable lessons about money management and acting with integrity. My mom had set up a ledger account in grade school. 5% of my earnings went to charity, 65% to savings, 30% to my discretionary account. Uh, we tithe uh, in Chicagoland, Mr. Atwood, 5% to charity. Uh, anyway, at 13, he writes, I felt empowered. I was my own self-sufficient man. Cadding taught me patience. I caddied for one guy who... Uh, Thought he was Arnold Palmer reincarnate. And uh, this guy, not a good player. He typically shoots 68 on the front nine. Pat Atwood, right. Cadding taught me to lose with dignity. While most golfers did, I also saw people smash clubs, assault inanimate objects, and howl profanities that would make Miriam and Webster roll over in their graves. Yeah, I'm familiar with all of the above, both as a caddy and player. Cadding taught me to sympathize even when I couldn't empathize. I once had a golfer. <laughs> this is great. I once had a golfer suffer a breakdown, ostensibly because he took six shots to clear the 11th hole greenside bunker. Why do I even play this stupid game? He asked between tears. <laughs> I've, I've never seen that on a golf course, but I've, I've almost been brought to tears many a time. I replied, plenty of golf left. Bad day on the golf course always beats a good day at work, right? Yeah. The, uh, the caddy handbook of platitudes to diffuse a tense or depressing situation. Caddying taught me teamwork and how to relate to people. Two or four times my senior, I uh, relate to people two or four times my seniors, you know, relate to older gentlemen. Forced to connect with eclectic players and quickly understand the idiosyncrasies of their games and, more importantly, their personalities. One guy refused to hit if the wind was blowing, <laughs> which in Chicago <laughs> made for some pretty long standoffs. Yeah, that guy probably had a lot of difficulty getting a game, too. But um, I, I, the idea of the caddying maturing you, that's a, that's a serious thing. Because, um, I mean, where I caddied, and I'm sure it was the case to a similar extent for Pat Atwood, who writes this piece I'm referencing. I mean, you had captains of industry. I, I grew up, I caddied for, for uh, a guy who was the CEO of Amico before it was BP Amico. You know, so you're talking about captains of industry, CEOs, very successful people, entrepreneurs or corporate titans, the opportunity to caddy for athletes were uh, mainly brought out as guests. But, I mean, I caddy for Michael Jordan growing up at Chicago Golf Club K for all sorts of Blackhawks, for Coach Mike Ditka, 
So, you know, it's it's cool. It's a cool experience because you get to meet all these interesting people. But it's also a maturing experience because, you know, a lot of these guys who play, and now that I'm a club member myself, I can tell you, you know, take their golf fairly seriously. You don't get upset with the caddy or whatever, but, you know, they want you to not get in their way. They not want you to know what you're doing. They want you to sort of, um, uh, you know, not be seen. We know you're there, but not be seen because you're just doing your job. Uh, you know, the game's tough enough without having to, you know, do a caddy lesson on the course. And sometimes you do that with a younger caddy, but, you know, you mature uh, along. And then you get to have real adult conversations with these guys and they gather real insights. You know, you know, you know, you know how it goes. Danny, there's a lot of uh, well, badness in the world today. I see it in court every day. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it. I owed it to them. Do you stand for goodness or badness? Good, goodness. Uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, writes Atwood, Catting taught me a lesson from Maya Angelou. People will never forget what you said. Except people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. I don't remember much about the golfers or their play, but I do remember how they treated me. Uh, he uh, recounts flirting with pneumonia during one loop as the guest, who is a kind of a deranged Bill Murray character from Caddyshack, trudge through the downpour repeating i don't think the heavy stuff will be coming down for quite a while now well that's a you know, sure classic um uh, yeah i uh, look it, and he, he also talks about getting back to what i was saying about uh being exposed to successful people in all walks of life and having the opportunity to see how they comport themselves and, and then even talk to them and you and and also lean on them for a recommendation for an Evans scholarship, lean on them for recommendations to college generally, lean on them for jobs after college. Uh, Atwood writes, I keep in touch. I still keep in touch with many members, some of whom wrote me recommendation letters for college, treated me to breakfast, to breakfast to discuss my academic aspirations, supported me as I mulled through tough career decisions. And uh, yeah, I, I've had some experience and it's been great to be able to get back out and play on the club that I grew up catting at and, and play with, um, members that I caddied for because, and that's, and that's, and in addition to just caddying as a job, uh, golf as a sport, it's really something about all sports. It's bonding. And the nice thing about golf is because it's not as physical as say the contact sports or uh, basketball, something like this, you know, you can play it uh, all your life. And so you develop relationships around the game all your life. And uh, those relationships are going to come in very handy for Pat Atwood at a 27-year-old working in uh, financial services in Chicago with that newly minted Stanford MBA. I can tell you that. This is Dan Prof. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show on March 30th of this year, way back in olden times, 90 days ago, not even. CNN.com reporting, the WHO stands by recommendation to not wear masks if you are not sick or not caring for someone who's sick. Quoting Dr. Mike Ryan, executive director of the WHO's health emergency program, 
There is no specific evidence to suggest that the wearing of masks by the mass population has any potential benefit. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest the opposite in the misuse of wearing a mask properly or fitting it properly. Dr. Mike Ryan, WHO, March 30th. There is no specific evidence to suggest that the wearing of masks by the mass population has any potential benefit. And yet here we are where 90 percent of the population has succumbed to the belief that uh, masks should be worn. You see people wearing masks outside. You see people wearing masks by themselves in their car. And you have see people calling for uh, statewide and national mandates for mask wearing. You have Georgia Tech professors who will not return to campus if masks are required for them, but not required for their students because they don't want to die, as one chemistry professor at Georgia Tech said. It's rather remarkable because I just have a simple question. What was the intervening medical breakthrough seminal study that was presented for public consumption between this March 30 pronouncement and where we stand today? Was there one? So what changed? For help in understanding that, pleased to be joined by Dr. Joseph Ladapo. He's an associate professor at UCLA's Def- David Geffen School of Medicine. Professor Ladapo, Dr. Ladapo, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you very much. So can you help me? With, did I miss some important study or determination between March 30th, that March 30th WHO declaration, and today on masks? <laughs> But first, I just want to say that my views are my own and not necessarily those of UCLA. So I've been asked to say that. Sure. I would say that it's complicated how we got here. You know, you started back in March. So let's go back to March. And even actually some of these calls from uh, from the CDC not to wear masks, I think maybe even go back to the very end of January or beginning of February. They were very reasonable. So there have been some randomized controlled trials, masks, mostly to prevent influenza transmission. And the idea is that in an experiment, if you can just randomly assign a treatment or an exposure, you reduce the risk of bias in your interpretation of your findings. Mm -hmm. So basically the highest standard we have for clinical evidence. And the clinical evidence from that highest standard has not been very supportive of general masking as a public health intervention. And that's what the studies show. Right. Many show no right. few shows benefit. And even then, sometimes I was looking at one study and the benefits, I believe, waned over time. And you can imagine, right, there are issues with compliance. I mean, half the time they're riding on people's chins or like half off uh, or under the nose. And it's not an accident. It's very natural to want to breathe. And some people, it, it doesn't bother them. And that's great. But for some people, it bothers them, you know, and that's it's And you, whether you, however hard you scream at them or, or encourage them or, or, or shame them or whatever, that's not going to change their experience with the mask. Now, in the time period, because the research has been so intensive, one of the things we've learned is that that there are a lot of asymptomatic, um, asymptomatic, in, uh, asymptomatic cases, right? So, so really, really, um, um, as far as I can tell, this sort of the flip flop on the recommendation from a medical perspective, and this is different from the sort of the the strategic perspective, which is like this issue of the shortages, and that's kind of a separate issue and sort of doesn't have anything to do with medicine. Okay. No. I've got a, 
toddler here. No, I understand. Um, yeah, but, so we're but, all these are all tense times. We get it. Yes, <laughs> tense but, times yeah. for everybody. <laughs> but yeah, so so then the asymptomatic uh, uh, the asymptomatic issue came up, and the issue here is it's really more. I mean, it's kind of more based on theory, right? So it's absolutely true that many people have done studies that show that if you have a mask on, there's less droplet transmission. Sure, of course there's less droplet transmission. You know, you're blocking off people's, um, you know, people's uh, expired ear. Um, But it's also true that in terms of, you know, really high-quality randomized trials that have tested whether doing this as a public health strategy is effective for COVID-19 prevention, are are absent, you know, and that's true too. Well, so, so let's, let's stop there. I want to uh, come back then. And so those two things that are seemingly uh, in conflict with one another are both true. And then just get your perspective then on how we come to this reversal and policy. And, and that folds into this piece you wrote in the journal about the credibility gap that uh, public health professionals have created for themselves. More with uh, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph Ladapo. He's an associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. And we were talking a bit about masks and the science and the research behind mask wearing as a preventative measure for the COVID-19 transmission. Specifically, Dr. Ladapo is going through some of that research and suggesting that uh, yeah, masks uh, do prevent uh, droplets from being transmitted. But at the same token, there's not any real strong evidence based on the randomly controlled uh, trials and studies that have been done on masks, including for healthcare workers, that they prevent influenza transmission. So I go back to our friend Chris von Schaffelve, who's a, a clinical computational epidemiologist, who basically said, look, the evidence is hardly strong enough to elevate mask wearing into the epitome of moral behavior. The preoccupation with masks may be more psychological in nature in the face of an enemy that has no cure and no prophylaxis than anything really rooted in science. And that's all well and good if that's how it's presented, but that's not how it's presented, and that's not how people are are viewing it. People are viewing it like a mask is some sort of uh, force field around you that prevents COVID transmission, and that's just not supported at all by the science. You're absolutely right about that. Now there's sort of this hysteria about masks, and it's for many people, for some people, it's been transformed into a moral issue that undoubtedly is creating more conflict and tension and basically pitting people against each other and leading people to lose sight of the bigger picture, which is how we actually keep the most vulnerable Americans from becoming ill from COVID-19. Consider the fact, right, we're months into this thing and we're still hearing about mask shortages we're still hearing about potential shortages with some of the medications that have come out so far in randomized trials to be effective. These are the questions we really need to be focused on. You know, why are we still worrying about rationing treatments for patients with COVID-19? And when are we going to be able to stop having to worry about it? When are we going to fix that problem? But we're not asking, and what else can we do for older people, for more vulnerable people? 
we're not asking those questions because right now there's so much infighting about people trying to force other people to wear masks when some people who don't want to wear them have completely legitimate reasons. And it's not because they don't care about you or they don't care about your, your, you know, your grandma. They just have their own, you know, there's the data, right? So what we get from our clinical trials, and then there's what we do about the data in terms of the type of policy we make. And we're in a place right now where our policy response is really diverting attention from the really important goal of thinking about all the different ways we can keep people from getting seriously ill and dying from COVID-19. Well, and the other thing, too, is changing the way we keep score. And, and this becomes a problem, too, is, you know, this, it's, it's about case counts now without context. So, yes, cases can be going up in certain places, but you still have fatality rates that are falling. In many places, even where you have increased cases, you have hospitalization rates falling. In some cases, hospitalization rates are rising. And so if you have to present data without context to drive a consequence you want, that seems to me it undermines the strength of the argument. And it, and it speaks to being ideological rather than evidence-driven. That's exactly what we're seeing. And it's just terrible. I mean, it, it really is. For one thing, it's effective. People are actually doing a really good job of presenting the piece of the picture they're you know, most interested in for whatever reason, and they're not providing context. And it's because of the fear surrounding this virus, they're effective in sort of getting people wrapped up, thinking that, Never mind the fact that the chance in most communities in the United States right now, the prevalence of active COVID-19 infection is somewhere around one in 100, maybe between one and two people in 100. In some places, it's probably less than one in 100. So, like, that's the chance that, like, that person that you're seeing is carrying the virus and potentially contagious. Sorry to interrupt, uh, Doctor, but do do you think that we're placing too much emphasis on optimism surrounding a vaccine. Yes, we all are guardedly optimistic. Yes, we would all like a vaccine tomorrow and have it be out the door and, and, and helping people as soon as possible. But, but you know, it's sort of this, uh, we're putting all our eggs in that basket with respect to some reopening of the economy. And maybe we should be thinking about it in a more measured way to say, uh, we may have to, you know, we may have to live with this for an extended period of time. The vaccine the promise of some of these vaccines in clinical trials may not bear out or may not bear out on the timeline that we're hoping. And so at some point you have to put your faith in people. And I mean, in people in in groups bigger than 50 uh, and live life without the vaccine or live life in some way uh, uh, that uh, uh, is sensible, but, um, you know, takes, takes the risks that are just required in order to, 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 to have a, a well-conceived approach to this? In short, yes, it's very sensible to not put all of our hope into a vaccine. And even the vaccine effort right now is, like, is really remarkable. I mean, there's so much energy, investment, scientific energy being invested in vaccine research right now that it seems likely that we will have a candidate or a few candidates even after that, right, it is true that it's been rushed. It's been rushed on purpose. 
and there will be concerns about safety among some people. You know, it's not the vaccine is not going to solve everything immediately. There will be concerns about, for example, the risk benefit ratio in children. You know, we know for now that the data very clearly show that influenza, for example, is more harmful to children than COVID-19 is. So will some schools try and mandate COVID-19 vaccination for children? There are more fights ahead, basically, and it's good to be practical about these things. It's good to recognize that even though, you know, you might be scared, and I'm not saying you, but some other person might be, you know, scared to death about COVID-19 and think the world should stop because of the virus, I may not feel that way. And one person trying to sort of lure their fear and uh, and like what they and how and the measures to control their fear on other segments of the population that aren't that aren't so fearful is not going to get us anywhere. It's going to waste time, waste energy, create completely unnecessary and avoidable conflict. And that's where we are right now. He is Dr. Joseph Ladapo, associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. And uh, I penned uh, the op-ed we were referencing, the coronavirus credibility gap in The Wall Street Journal which I'll tweet out at Dan Proft Show. Dr. Ladapo, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, we're uh, learning how some colleges and universities are going to deal with the fall semester and students on campus. Harvard and Princeton bringing students back to campus this fall. Not everyone returning at the same time. And oh, by the way, bringing everyone back to campus where they will sit in their dorm room and do all of their classwork online. What exactly is the point of that? Princeton, though, offering a wonderful 10% discount tuition for the the fact that they're phasing in the return of students at different years uh, to campus while also doing online instructional too. So, you know, instead of $80,000 a year, it's $72,000 a year. What relief. Uh, and uh, this sort of staggering that the Ivy League is presenting may be what you see at the K through 12 level as well. You know, this will be influential. So, for example, Princeton, uh, the school announced Monday first year students and juniors allowed to return to campus for the fall, while sophomores and seniors will be welcomed back in the spring. And what is it you're getting for that uh, Ivy League degree? What are you getting when you hire an Ivy League employee? An Ivy League graduate, I should say. Well, Deloitte found out what they got, and they got rid of it. Her name is uh, Clara Janover, and uh, she took to TikTok to explain how she had been dislodged, relieved of her job at Deloitte. And, uh, of course, you know who's faulted is Trump and Trump supporters. Trump supporters took my job away from me. <laughs> I've gotten death threats, rape threats, violent threats. It was okay. But now it's just like my future. My future is entirely compromised because Trump supporters have decided to come for my life. 
God, this sucks. You guys suck. I'm too strong for you. I'm too strong for any of you. She's rallying. All lives matter. Raises Trump supporters. It sucks, but it doesn't suck as much as systemic racism. And I'm not going to stop using my platform to advocate for it. And I'm sorry, Deloitte, that you can't see that. That you are cowardice enough to fight somebody who's going to make an indelible change in the world and is going to have an impact. Right. Uh, Deloitte will rue the day and all that. We get it. Um, uh, Miss Janover was fired for apparently threatening to stab anyone who says all lives matter. Uh, while she blames all the ills of the world on Trump supporters. There's your Harvard grad. You know what? No matter what the academic credential is, no matter even what the actual intellectual capacity is, sometimes you got to take a hard look at people and say, you know, do I really want to deal with this on, the day to, on a day-to-day basis? Is it really worth it? And just in that less than one minute of hearing from Clara Janover, would you hire her? This is Dan Prost. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Uh, the KIPP Charter Schools uh, changing their motto. They uh, decided that uh, their uh, current motto is a bit uh, too controversial in these times. Their current motto, the motto is work hard and be nice. Isn't it obvious? It uh, diminishes the significant effort to dismantle systemic racism, places value on being compliant and submissive, supports the illusion of meritocracy, and does not align with our vision of students being free to create the future they want. That's what's wrong with it. Uh, so we'll uh, take your suggestions for um, replacing work hard and be nice with KIPP charter schools. I mean, I guess if that's wrong, then you'd go the opposite direction. Lounge around, be angry. America sucks, so you should too. Right? Isn't that the message? I'm, I'm a victim. I can't do anything about it. This country's terrible, so I'm going to be terrible for my life to show you how, just how terrible this country is. That's the logic of it, isn't it? Work hard, be nice. That's controversial. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, this is, I believe, what our friend Carol Swain means when she writes... America's sovereignty is teetering on a precipice. Uh, Carol Swain, uh, a black woman, academic, a standout academic at Princeton and Vanderbilt for many years. America is poised to collapse from within. Her imminent demise will not come from foreign troops courted on her soil. It will come from Marxists and anarchists who use racial grievance and the cries of the oppressed to dismantle America's institutions and defenses. And then have... Uh, People like uh, those uh, underwritten by the well-heeled center-left in the charter school movement jump right over the edge with them. 
We're at a historical moment, writes Carol Swain. We're at a historical moment where America's institutions of higher education, many of them founded and led by Christian leaders, have rejected their founders and become transmission belts for socialism and Marxist propaganda. Teetering on a precipice. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kurt Schlichter. He is a trial lawyer, retired Army infantry colonel and senior columnist for townhall.com. His new book, The 21 Biggest Lies About Donald Trump and You, exclamation point. It's almost like the uh, the end of a Yakov Smirnov joke. And you, Soviet Union, uh, yeah, Soviet uh, Russia, come for you. Kurt Schlichter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, I want to thank you for having the, you know, the city of Chicago, a place that sucks more than my own hometown of Los Angeles. So thanks to, for taking some of the pressure off of us. Not a problem. Not a problem. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, before we get to, uh, the, you know, running down the 21 biggest lies, um, the, um, the, you know, the, the KIPP charter schools as an example, the, you know, replacing work hard and be nice, that is obviously uh, um, oppressive in its nature. And, and then just the larger point that, that that highlights this precipice that many people believe America is teetering on. Oh, I don't believe we're teetering. Look, 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 I, I'm a military guy. What ground do these guys hold? Not very much. They hold our institutions, but our institutions were already in a, in a, in a long, long, drawn-out uh, suicide pact long before this idiocy happened. There's so it, – it's a great – what we call the military information operation. You got a, you got kinetic operations where you know you're taking guys and shooting. It's, that's not what's going on here. This is trying to demoralize us. This is trying to convince us that we are falling apart and our garbage institutions, everything from Hollywood to the mainstream media, uh, it, it, they're exhausted. They failed so long they can't even stand up for themselves. I mean, look at academia. You know, I mean, it, it, back when I was in school, if I, you know, if I walked in and say, "Here's my demands for dismantling uh, uh, systemic meritocracy," you know, here, here they are. They'd look at me and go, "That's really nice. Go do your work." <laughs> Has anyone ever said no to these idiots? Has anyone ever said, you know, "Oh, thank you for your demands. I want you to roll them up really tight, light them on fire, and then I want you to stuff them, and you know where that's going." So, so yeah, I, I know that uh, the cultural Marxists were in charge of all of our civic institutions prior to the last uh, thirty or sixty days. But but that's not that was not inconsequential then. And it perhaps it's even more consequential now that they're actively providing cover for the mob. I, I, I don't know that. And I'm not suggesting you are. But but I mean, don't you find the disintegration of the civilizing institutions in America troubling? I, I do find it troubling. But it's inevitable. Change is inevitable. What we're having here is a battle of our garbage elite against normal people who rebelled in 2016. Let's look at our gen- let's look at our, the generations, right? Let's do a comparison. We got the greatest generation. They beat Hitler and 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 dragged America out of the Great Depression. That's a good achievement. And we have the the generation that was in charge uh, during the 60s, which uh, you know did civil rights, actually dismantled systemic racism, which was 
all put in place and executed by Democrats, but we'll just kind of leave that to the side for a second. And they put a man on the moon. And this generation, well, our accomplished elite, the spectacular betters who are always willing to tell us how they are morally and intellectually superior to us, they gave us, let's see, Iraq, the Wall Street meltdown, Grinder, not a great track record to run on. <laughs> Grindr. Okay? I didn't see Grinder coming. If they want to collapse, I'm like, let, I'm pulling out the block on the Jenga. Yeah, but, but um, okay, but uh, it, it, the collapse won't come without consequence, it would seem. And part of the consequence, True. and you, so you look at who has uh, the levers of power, and you see increasingly that's uh, big tech companies and big government. And that that turns out to probably more likely than not. And you don't need to be Ray Bradbury or Aldous Huxley to figure this out. It probably turns out not to end so well for the freedom loving folks. Well, oh, I, I don't know about that. I'm optimistic. Now, look, I, I wrote the book, 21 Lies About Donald Trump and You. I got to say that because my marketing guys will hassle me. Absolutely. If I don't. Yes. Yeah, uh, yes, but, yes. Uh, but, but part of it is how, uh, in, including by big tech, they attempt to basically hoodwink us with a nonstop tsunami of lies. The thing is, the gate, you know, the gatekeepers don't matter as much as Andrew Breitbart, who was my pal and dragged me into all this, pointed out. They don't mean as much when the walls fall down. You can talk about how dark and divisive Donald Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore was. You can whisper about how it's uh, uh, worse than Hitler at Nuremberg. <laughs> and then a normal person can nod his head and go, okay, I'm going to actually listen to it. You know, on townhall.com, for instance, where I'm a senior columnist. And then you can go and listen to it. And you can go, wow, it was all a lie. It was all a scam. It's all garbage. Look, I'm a Los Angeles trial lawyer, and I deal with liars all the time. So I'm, I'm kind of a snob about liars. These guys aren't even good at it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I, look, I thought I had no shame, Gene, because I went to law school. I look at these people. And they don't even they don't even blink when they lie to you. They're not even lying because it's not truth isn't important. We're in a post truth era, and you have to understand. Yeah, you can never talk these guys out of anything because they don't care. You can say, "Look, the sky is blue," and they go, "Yeah, the sky is uh, uh, black," and it's and that's because it's important for that to be that color today. For me, I get what I want, which is power. Uh, do you see that? Uh, do you see Trump's speech at uh, Mount Rushmore over the weekend as perhaps a, a, a turning point and a refocusing of of his presidency and in, in this campaign uh, in this uh, next five months to really frame the choice uh, in more or less the terms that you just presented it? I, I think it is. Uh, I, you know, I've had people go, well, Trump's exhausted, and he, he, he didn't really want it, and he's going, oh, come on, he's the most competitive guy on earth. This is a guy who marries nothing but models, okay? I'm from Los Angeles. That's a certain kind of guy, and he doesn't like to lose. Of course, I, I married an immigrant model, too. But okay, Good for you, yes. yes. Player! Yeah, uh, right. but, but, yes. No, the thing is, he wants to win. This is about getting us focused getting us back in action. And I've watched, it looks like they're getting their organization together. Look, I'm a war college graduate. I like organizations that function well. His campaign hadn't been. I think it's been refocused. I know for a fact people have gotten to him and said, you need to square this away or you will lose. He is a real estate developer. He understands that sometimes you have to reset and apply Gucci loafers to people's behinds. He's going to do that. I, if I have to choose what horse I'm riding, I'm riding Donald Trump in November. 
He is Kurt Schlichter, trial lawyer, retired Army Infantry Colonel, senior columnist for townhall.com. The book, The 21 Biggest Lies About Donald Trump and You! Exclamation point. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Hey, thanks for having me. Show.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, let's start at the collegiate level uh, for this installment of sports and politics, but we'll get to the NFL. Jason Whitlock sticks the landing again on Colin Kaepernick and also uh, Roger Goodell's uh, announcement that the black, the so-called black national anthem will be played in addition to the national anthem for NFL openers. want to get to those matters as well. But first, a former uh, Penn State basketball player, Rasir Bolton, who transferred to Iowa State to play ball in May of last year, but never explained why until Monday. Uh, He, in a tweet, explained that uh, Penn State coach Pat Chambers' use of the word noose in a conversation And the subsequent response from Chambers in the athletic department led him to transfer from Penn State to Iowa State. Here's apparently what happened. This uh, from an interview he gave to the undefeated. Uh, The day after a Wisconsin game, Chambers, the coach, told Bolton, the player, he knew the freshman was under a lot of pressure because he, hot prospect, standout player. Chambers told Bolton he knew the freshman was under a lot of pressure and wanted to help him. Bolton recalls the coach, Chambers, who was on the hot seat due to the suspension and a 7-8 and record at that point in the season, saying, quote, I want to be a stress reliever for you. You can talk to me about anything. I need to get some of this pressure off you. I want to loosen the noose that's around your neck. That's what uh, the coach said. Now, Bolton said in his statement that he doesn't believe Chambers using the word noose was a slip of the tongue given his other interactions with the coach. Bolton also said that Chambers never apologized during a meeting between him, his parents, and the athletic director, and Chambers. Bolton also alleged that Chambers said his parents were organized and well-spoken, sort of one of those uh, tone-deaf, Biden-esque, backhanded compliments, you know, clean, well-spoken, that uh, are directed to, to black people. So I could see if he said that, taking offense at that, actually. Uh, Chambers tweeted a statement Monday apologizing to Bolton and his parents for using the word noose and failing to grasp the larger significance. He admitted using the word noose in the conversation with Bolton, deeply regrets it, doesn't remember calling Bolton's parents organized or well-spoken. He also said, did the coach, that he recalled apologizing during the meeting with Bolton and the parents. So, I mean, could Bobby Knight have a coaching career today? And would that be too bad if he couldn't? I mean, Bobby Knight was, you know, if you ever read Season on the Brink, and if you haven't, you should. Great book. But, I mean, you know, Bobby Knight's antics, including with his players, putting a, you know, a box of tampons in Daryl Thomas's locker. The whole Remember the whole Cal Cheney whipping Cal Cheney on the sidelines controversy? How would that be treated today? And yet the reality is Bobby Knight had this great relationship with most of his players, including most of his black players. I mean, uh, what he did for Landon Turner, who was paralyzed, is well-known. 
for example. So, you know, I mean, can, can you say something that just comes across the wrong way or that just, you know, you just didn't think it through and uh, and have somebody say, hey, you know what, let's just don't use that word. Don't don't use that word that way. Don't be flippant with that word. Don't be glib with it. That means something to me. It sort of bothers me. So just don't use it and have a relationship that has enough respect and trust to say, hey, you know what, I hear you. It's fine. No problem. My bad. Does it have to be this national incident that leads to a from a, a to a player to transfer and a year later we're hashing it out on sports websites about who said what in what which meetings i mean i'm not accusing anybody of operating in bad faith in this incident i think this incident's interesting because it's uh, sort of a tough call you know the comments that chambers is alleged to made including the one he did make the noose around your neck probably not the best uh, metaphor in that moment, but also in that moment, he's saying, I'm trying to get the pressure off you. I know you're under a lot of pressure. You're just a freshman. We're asking you to carry too much of a load and I want to help get the pressure off you. I want you to be able to talk to me. Does that sound like somebody who's trying to uh, treat his basketball player, his, uh, the, the kid, this kid who plays for him as less than human or something? Do you want to cut people slack, a little bit of slack? Not everybody uses the same vernacular. Not everybody is as thoughtful with their words. And again, I don't know all the history between Chambers and Bolton, the coach and the, the, the ball player here. But I, I just that sort of stuff to rise to this level and require this much engagement of this many parties. I mean, could even John Wooden, who is you know the greatest coach in organized sports history, as far as I'm concerned, 10 championships, 12 years, and recognizes one of sort of the greatest, most even tempered gentlemen the sport has ever seen. And I'm not just talking about basketball. I should say sports has ever seen. Could John Wooden survive today? Would organized sports be less if a John Wooden could, could not survive? Let me give you an example of what I mean. This has nothing to do with race, but it has to do with the relationship between a coach and a player or teacher and a student or a parent and a child or an employer and an employee. The, this great story about uh, Wooden and Bill Walton. Maybe I've told it before. It bears repeating. Walton uh, goes off on uh, the UCLA team is off for a week or something, break or whatever, comes back and he's grown a beard. Wooden sees Walton in practice, shooting around, warming up, whatever, sees that he's grown a beard. No facial hair policy at UCLA under John Wooden. So he goes up to John Wooden, does Walton. I mean, he goes up to Walton, does John Wooden and says, so, Bill, uh, you know, what's with the facial hair? You know the policy. And Walton says, coach, I know the policy. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, remember, Bill Walton was a bit of a hippie. This is the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, this is me making a political statement, and this is really important to me, so that's why I did it. And um, I really am intent on keeping the facial hair. And uh, John Wooden says to Walton, well, Bill, you understand that I respect people who do things from a place of conscience. And so if that's your commitment and that's something that you know this is something that is that important to you then i'm not going to stand in between you and your conscience and expressing yourself in this way and uh, we're really going to miss you on the team bill walton who's the best player in college basketball at the time decided to shave kept playing for ucla goes on to win another championship and the rest is history the point is to say you know we have rules here and they mean something to me and i get to make the rules and you agree to abide those rules when you come to UCLA. And so that means something, too. And you're going to honor your commitment, and I'm going to honor mine. But, I mean, a political statement out of conscience in the time of the 60s, uh, hippie movement and war protestations and so forth, 
How would John Wooden's conversation with Walton be treated by today's press, by today's woke walkers? Meetings with the athletic director and mom and dad and back and forth on on uh, the undefeated or outkick.com or some other sports website. I mean, I mean, is there no ability to depoliticize and resolve disputes interpersonally? Uh, you know, that goes all, all, all that goes into recruiting a player on both sides of it, the player and the coach and the and the school recruiting a player for D1 Big Ten basketball. I mean, uh, Rasir Bolton knew who Pat Chambers was. You do visits, you meet the, uh, the coach, meets the family. There has to be a comfort level. Otherwise, you know, Rasir Bolton could play in a lot of places. Obviously, he just transferred to Iowa State, which is another really good program. Probably a better program than Penn State in terms of basketball. It, it just seems to me, you know, again, it's there's so much impetus to have a victimhood credential have a a moment where you were treated like less than even if you weren't and you're going to look for it and you're going to try to 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 uh, bootstrap it even if it isn't there just so you have that arrow in your quiver it's sad it's no good for sports and it's no good for society dan prof The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And uh, our next guest was uh, very considered. I thought, uh, I I believe she was the first one upon the announcement of the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell last year week to uh, express condolences on her upcoming suicide. So I thought that was very thoughtful and empathetic of Carol Roth, who's a creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System and uh, recovering investment banker and uh, host of the Roth Effect podcast. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, always great to chat with you. Yeah, very considerate, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. I appreciate that. Um, before we get to um, your uh, provocative piece on our celebritized culture. I wanted to uh, have you put your recovering investment banker hat on, particularly this conversation we had earlier on the show with former CKE restaurant CEO Andy Puzder about uh, this this recovery. And all of the arguments to this point have been, will it be L-shaped? Will it be U-shaped? Will it be V-shaped? Uh, will it take any shape as all, at all? I'm asking, as you have more and more states playing this whack-a-mole game uh, against COVID-19 through the use of locking down their economy. And so, yes, I, I know the jobs numbers have been surprisingly good in May and June, but do you worry at all that we're not really out of the starting gate and it may be a while before we do if we continue to see states take this approach to reopening? You know, I always kind of giggle when everybody said that they were surprisingly good. I mean, we turned off the economy. We told businesses you can't open and people you can't go to work. And then we said, okay, now you can. And some of those came back. That's not surprising (laughs) from my standpoint. But the tenor of what's happening is that we have so many small businesses in this country, 30.2 million, and a lot of them didn't have the wherewithal to be shut down at all, let alone for two weeks, let alone for four weeks. And even though some of them were able to get PPP loans, many of them, particularly on the solopreneur side, either weren't or because the goalposts moved so many times, were too afraid to. 
in fear of being audited or that they wouldn't be able to get those loans forgiven. I think that we are vastly understating the number of small businesses that are going to be able to, you know, come back and either, I think some of them are going to close permanently. I think a lot of them are going to open up a diminished capacity and flounder. I think productivity is going to end up way down. On top of that, I think we have a lot of concerns um, in commercial real estate. We have certainly a lot of concerns in commercial debt. And then on top of this, this weird experiment that the Fed has been running and doing all these kinds of things that are completely not with in their mandate. And I think that this is just a perfect storm of disaster on the horizon. So I'm actually very pessimistic myself in terms of what happens. Now, that being said, probably tale of two economies. We probably get some businesses on the tech side and whatnot that aren't affected at all. But for Main Street, unfortunately, was sold out to Wall Street. And I think that's going to have a bad ending. What about radio? I'm, I'm really just interested in protecting myself. <laughs> uh, just, what's, your, what's your prognosis for radio talk show hosts? I, I think in this case, you know, it's all about the individual survival instinct. So, Dan, I think you're going to make it. Okay, very good. Uh, phew, that's a close call. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, you know, you, you make the point that it, it's implicit in the point you make. Half of the unemployment was people making less than $40,000 a year. And so um, they bore the brunt of the shutdown, and they're yeah. going to bear the brunt of the of the, the pace of the recovery, particularly on the slower end. Yeah, and, and you also don't have captured in the numbers all of the solo small business owners and probably to some extent some of the gig workers as well who are not considered you know, traditional employees. So when you see people have lost their jobs, you're not counting that they've lost their quote-unquote businesses in many of the cases just by the way that the filings work. And I think that a lot of that fallout hasn't been captured yet and that people forget when we say small business is the backbone of the country. It actually is. It's half the jobs. It's half the GDP. And that is going to be meaningful. And as a Chicago metro resident like myself, um, what's your prognosis for the future of big urban centers as uh, we see right now ongoing a flight from density? Yeah, no, I think that that's going to be uh, certainly a trend. I think the city has did a huge disservice in sort of everything that has happened and have really been for a long time. I mean, these big states and, and big city and you know, sort of very blue policies with big unions that give us, whether it's, you want to say, failing or overzealous police or failing education or, you know, don't control rioters at the same time that you're telling small business owners we're going to fine you if you open your business. I think a lot of people are really rethinking what's important to them. So if there's any silver lining, um, hopefully, you know, be people sort of rethinking what's important to them. That being said, I don't know if it's going to be as dramatic as perhaps one might think because people are creatures of habit. And so assuming that there is a way to get on the other side and we don't just have continual rolling pandemics every year, I think that, you know, a lot of the behavioral changes that may happen in the medium term, you know, call it 12, 18, 24 months, over time people will go back to their old ways. When we come back with uh, Carol Roth, host of the Roth Effect podcast, want to get to her piece uh, she penned for The Spectator. So you want to be famous about our celebritized culture. We'll start there. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back. We're speaking with Carol Roth. She's the creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System, recovering investment banker and host of the Roth Effect podcast. And Carol, uh, you uh, decided to uh, offer up a review of our celebritized culture. Everybody wants to be a celebrity. And and uh, much like Andrew Sullivan said, we're all on a college campus now. We're all a celebrity now, too. We are, and you, you forgot to mention in my bio that I am also Twitter famous. Um, and unfortunately, we all are. I mean, back in the good old days, you'd go, you pick up the National Enquirer, and you'd think about, oh, look at these fantastic celebrities, and you know, wouldn't it be nice for everyone to know my name? And then, of course, we'd gossip about them and you know, read all these lies that were printed. And with the democratization of technology, we have now also gotten the democratization of celebrity. And so now anybody has that opportunity to become famous, whether you want to or not. And God forbid you said something when you were 14 years old or dressed up offensively for Halloween based on what you know somebody thinks or whatever it is, somebody catches you in a bad moment on video. Now there is this digital paparazzi and mob who are paid not in dollars for their work, but in social clout, and they're going to come for you. And it's, it's pretty frightening. Well, and and you have it uh, go right in in a lot of different directions, directions that, of course, uh, uh, some of those seeking celebrity or some of those who believe that they are, you know, on the woke and thus the right side of history are now suffering the same fate. You had uh, a a police officer in uh, Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, who tweeted out some pictures of her niece uh, protesting the police uh, locally. And it included some relatively aggressive signage like, uh, you know, what do we do with murderers who wear badges and shoot the F back, meaning shoot back at police. And uh, apparently some of her colleagues at the police department didn't enjoy (laughs) posting those photos. They didn't find That's highly surprising, Dan. Yeah, they were not as interested in supporting uh, the officer's niece as she was. Or, I'm sorry, niece is gender-specific. I meant nibbling, which is the (laughs) uh, gender-neutral term for a niece Yeah, because we don't know. We don't want to make assumptions. No, no, exactly. I don't want to suffer the same fate, of course. And uh, and she got fired from her job. So it's just it's just interesting to see how, you know, this is something where you uh, unleash the beast and you can no longer control the beast. Right. And then that's the thing is that, you know, it starts where we're we're directing it at the bad guy. But when you have no principle and you go off of emotion instead of principle, as we all know, eventually it grows into that beast you're talking about. There's also this woman um, who went to Harvard who made a really lousy analogy that a paper cut was the same as being stabbed, being you know analogous to all lives matter and black lives matter. And she came off, you know, a, a little bit um threatening, shall we say, and so she lost her job at Deloitte and, of course, you know, didn't blame it on anybody other than Trump supporters who were coming to get her. But but that's the thing. It's like nobody wants to mind their own business. Everybody is a perfectly uh, wonderful saint who's never done anything bad in their lives, never got mad at anybody, including the people that they loved, and, you know, now they're going to spend all of their energy instead of building other people up, finding whatever they can to tear them down. And, you know, as I said, you know, luxury is going to be or or privacy is going to be that luxury of the future that you know we all used to not want it and it's going to be the thing we all want and while fame you know seemed kind of exotic and maybe glamorous now that everybody has a microphone it's kind of terrifying right and um and it becomes a um gosh just a a world with less character it becomes a less interesting world and uh 
uh, a less beautiful world, too. And an example of this is the controversy that now surrounds Hamilton and Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda because he used the N-word in two audiobooks, once while reading directly from a work by author uh, Junio Diaz and another while quoting his castmate David Diggs in the pages of his own book about Hamilton. But now this is, well, Hamilton is not taking slavery seriously enough. Yeah, which is amazing. I saw it for the first time. I was one of the people who missed it in the go-around. You know, I, I had high expectations, so I assumed that it wasn't going to meet them. I saw it. I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was a masterpiece. I thought it was groundbreaking. And I thought that Lin-Manuel Miranda's did a really interesting thing, trying to turn the history on its head and maybe take back, you know, sort of that aspect of slavery. And now you're, he's getting dragged, not just for those things you're talking about, but Hamilton is problematic and it's overlooking and glamorizing slave ownership and, you know, all these things. And it's like you just can never be woke enough. And that's the problem with intersectionality is it's the hunger games and eventually even though you check seven of the boxes somebody's going to have eight boxes checked and that means you're going to be the next one fed to the wolf well and it's it, it's uh, it's quite interesting too because uh, it's not only the history we don't know it's the current events we don't know uh, all those who are so interested in in uh, tackling slavery um, we'll get to it because uh, but some of the groups that track this suggest there are as many 30 as 30 million people currently in this yeah. world, in, in the 2020 world, living in slavery in places like India and Pakistan and Haiti and Mauritania. So, I mean, if we're interested in... in, uh, in and in, human for, trafficking. I mean, this is happening well, right. in our country well, right now. Je- people sold into sex slavery. Well, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, so... Right. So, right. So if, if we're interested in freeing people from bondage, which we're all interested in doing, how about uh, how about doing so where we can actually save people currently enslaved? What about that idea? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that all of these things are tied together, and it doesn't mean that any one of them are more or less important. I think that the, the whole issue here is going back to our previous discussion is how you communicate and are you really looking to solve the problem and bring people together and move forward or are you looking to pick a fight and unfortunately yeah. it seems like much of the latter is happening and it's two sides of the same coin you, you can go in one direction or the other you, you can take the same perspective you can be the glass is half full or half empty and it just depends on your course of action and unfortunately we have now created this mob monster culture that just wants to to literally tear everything down, including statues and, you know, whatever else. They want to tear it down instead of recognizing what the issues are together, because we're humans, it's never going to be perfect, and working together to find a solution. She is Carol Roth, creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System, recovering investment banker, host of the Roth Effect podcast, and Twitter famous and fabulous. <laughs> uh, Carol Roth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This is the Dan Prof Show. Hey. 
Welcome back to the show. As we close out, we remember country music great Charlie Daniels, really just music great Charlie Daniels, because he wasn't just a country artist. As a lot of people know, he was a highly regarded session musician, played on three Bob Dylan albums, including Nashville Skyline, as well as on recordings for Ringo Starr and Leonard Cohen. Country Music Hall of Fame, unbelievable career. Uh, Charlie Daniels passing away at the age of 83, tweeting out uh, this biblical verse, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid man of conviction as well, who was not afraid to speak his piece, uh, particularly later on in life. And uh, he would pen op-eds over at cns.com, uh, cybernewsservice.com, uh, every now and again, and uh, opine on some of the issues of the day uh, when he uh, wrote, for example, one of those op-eds I referenced in response to all the protests after Trump's inauguration in 2017, I see young people interviewed on television who can't even articulate the reason they're protesting. Hysterical protesters screaming about First Amendment rights, which they seem to think only protect them and those who think like them, and that the opposition has no First Amendment protection and should be shouted down at all costs. You know, common sense conservative, common sense Christian conservative. He um, also, in an op-ed, wrote that the pot is boiling and it's only a matter of time before there'll be blood on the streets. That was well in advance of the blood on the streets that we have seen over the last four weeks, unfortunately. Uh, He um, was pro-lifer. He was pro-Second Amendment. He was pro-America. And he said, I've had a great life, Uh, talking actually uh, in an interview about his memoir to Glenn Beck. I've had a great life. I wouldn't trade lives with anybody. Well, that's a that's a pretty, pretty, pretty good place to be as you near the end, isn't it? And Charlie Daniels was, and he plays this out with, of course, what else? Devil went down to Georgia. Georgia, he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what, I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. A sin, but I'll take your bet you're gonna regret cause I'm the best as ever been. Johnny rising up your boat and play your fiddle hard. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals cards. But if you win, you get the shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prop Show. Please do so again. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prop Show. You are fake news.